0: Good morning, Anacostia River Church. Oh, come on now. Good morning. Amen. Didn't the the praise team sound wonderful this morning? Amen. Yeah, it was really encouraging. I know they blessed you because I saw some brothers couldn't help but stand up and dance a little bit. It's all right. God, great God. He's that great. We ought to dance for him, too. Well, let me add my word of welcome to any visitors that we have this morning. We are, we're so glad that you would join us and worship with us. We can't think of any place we would rather you be than with us as we praise uh, our sovereign God this morning. Uh, a couple things that might be helpful to you if you're visiting with us. Uh, one is, if you need a Bible, uh, please raise your hand. We have some Bibles. We'd be happy to um, share with you this morning. In fact, to give to you this morning if you don't have a Bible of your own. Does anybody need a Bible this morning? Excellent. One brother over on the right here, sister here. And we want that to be our gift to you, Um, so please take that, Uh, do something that people are sometimes scared to do, write your name in it, uh, and uh, take it home with you, and uh, read it through the week as we study God's Word individually and together. Well, the other thing just to say by way of introduction is we order, order our services much the way Christians, Protestant Christians have for a long, long time now. So if you look in the bulletins under that little section there called Order of Service, There's a little trivia for you. Uh, Most Christians have thought of the order of service as a kind of conversation between God and his people. So you see that little section there that says, call to worship, and a reference to Ezra? That's where God, through his word, calls us together to bring him praise and glory. And then we respond to God by singing a couple of songs there. So we speak back to God in song. Then God speaks to us from his word in the scripture reading of Isaiah 46. We believe that God does indeed speak through this book, and that's what he's been doing. We've been having a conversation with him. And so then we spoke back in song and in prayer, and anytime time you're talking to God, he ought to have the, the first and last say and the longest say. Is that right? And so we come now to the time of the sermon where God speaks again through the preaching of his word, and that's what we want to hear this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 9. We're going to consider this entire chapter. Uh, Again, if you're just joining us for the first time this morning, we are working our way through a series on our statement of faith. All the statement of faith is is a summary of what we believe the Bible teaches. And we use uh, a historical statement called the London Baptist Confession. It was written in 1689. So we're not confessing anything new or unique. We're confessing something that Christians have believed, uh, at least in terms of this document, for uh, 400 years, uh, and, and many, many, much longer, okay? So we're in chapter 3, which is called God's Decree, uh, which is a, a chapter that really illustrates for us the, the sovereignty of God, what we have been singing about uh, in Psalms this morning. So if you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 9, uh, somebody have a page number on the, on the blue Bible that we've handed out? On page 945, if you're using the Bibles that we've provided. Romans chapter 9, when you hear me say chapter number, I'm referring to the big number in the Bible, and you hear me say the verse number, say verse 1, I'm referring to the small number there. So Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. This is God speaking to us. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. not because of works, but because of his call, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. He hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out the same lump one vessel for honored use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sands of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For The Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That that is a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on words, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Let's pray together. Father, we receive this as your inspired word given by your spirit through the apostle, guided, O Lord, to set down not only his thoughts, Lord, but the thoughts that you gave him. That we might have here in written form the word you spoke long ago. And that it might be, Lord, comfort to us, instruction, and help. Speak, O oh Lord, we pray, by your word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Perhaps the best way to sort of set up Romans chapter 9 is to acknowledge something about this chapter and what it teaches. That on the one hand, Romans 9, like all of God's word, is given to us for our comfort. It's given to us to assure us, to to care for us, to instruct us, and to, to settle us into the knowledge of the goodness of God. Yet at the same time, Romans chapter 9 for a lot of people is perhaps the most disconcerting chapter in the Bible. It raises some things about the nature of God and about the nature of salvation that in some ways are quite shocking to us in their magnitude and in the sheer pressing weight of this God that's revealed to us. And so we come to a chapter that is strange in that its purpose is to comfort, and yet it discomforts, unless we have some things adjusted by this chapter in our minds and in our hearts. Now, why is this chapter important? It's not important because it's the next chapter in our statement of faith, and therefore the next chapter we're considering in our sermon series. This chapter is important for at least two reasons. Two reasons. First, because God gave it to us, right? So make that a third and first and primary reason. It's also important because it answers the question of how anybody is ever saved from God's judgment. The most important question in the universe, how are sinners who are hostile to God ever able to escape the judgment of God? It's answered in this chapter. But it's important also because of where it begins and, and, and because of what that beginning teaches us. And if you live long enough, you're going to experience some things that cause you anguish. You're going to experience some things that are not easily comforted. You're going to experience some things that are in fact heartbreaking And terrifying, you're going to run into some things that cause you to doubt yourself and sometimes will cause you to doubt God himself. All you have to do is be human to have that experience and to be paying attention to life in order to run into some things that discomfort you. And so this chapter is important because it teaches us some uncomfortable truths about God That if held, work comfort in our souls in the most distressing of times. Now, here's the question that distresses Paul. It's our first point, if you're taking notes, it's in the form of a question Does God keep His Word? Does God of the universe keep His Word, His promises? To his people, Notice how it opens in verses 1 to 5. Paul says, listen, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm speaking in the name of Jesus Christ the Savior. And I'm telling you the truth. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Notice verse 2. That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I imagine, this is just my imagination, I imagine Paul comes to this question with tears right about now. And his quill trembles in his hands as he considers what's going on in his heart and considers the question that's provoked as he looks at Israel. Why does he have this anguish in his heart? Why does he have great sorrow? Notice the adjectives. Great sorrow. Anybody ever felt that? Unceasing Anguish. Has anybody ever felt a kind of torment in the soul that seems like it's never going to go away? What is Paul feeling? Verse 3, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Paul is troubled because he's saved and Israel isn't. And he writes these mind-blowing words. I wish I was accursed and I was cut off. In other words, I wish I was going to hell. I wish I was going to be judged by God. Why? Because I'm looking at my kinsmen according to the flesh. I'm looking at my ethnic group. I'm looking at my people, Israel, who have all these advantages in verses 4 and 5. And they're not saved. They don't have Christ. They don't believe in him. They are lost in their sins. And and part of the anguish, part of the confusion, I'm sure, is verses 4 and 5. Look at all that God has given Israel. They are Israelites. And to them belong the adoption. God has called them his children. The glory, the promise of one day seeing God's splendor and glory with their own eyes. They had been promised that. And the covenants, the the relationships that God has established with his people through, through his word. The giving of the law, the law of Moses and the instruction of God. that They might know, next, the worship. The promises. To them belong the the patriarchs, the founding fathers of biblical religion. And from their nation or race or ethnic group, according to the flesh, naturally, biologically, (laughs) through Israel comes the Christ, the very Savior of God. How many advantages can they have? And Paul, Who's been stoned by Israel, who's been run out of synagogues, who's been left for dead in ditches for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ? Paul sees that they have every advantage and they're lost. Unceasing anguish, great sorrow. So that Paul, Romans 10, verse 1, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. You pray for anybody like that? The apostle's heart breaks. And it's not like, unlike the emotion that we feel when we think about that brother or that sister, that aunt or uncle, that family member that doesn't know Jesus. They were raised in the same home that you were raised in. And they had all the advantages that you had. They were blessed with a believing mom or dad. Or maybe even went to a Christian school. They were brought up in the church. They're cradle Baptists. And they heard the gospel all the time. And mom and dad and others have wept in prayer over them. Lord, would you save them? Would you, would you save them? They're headed toward eternity. And they don't know Jesus. Or you're not sure they know Jesus. And you plead. Lord, would you save them? Anybody got a brother or sister like that? Or an, aunt or an uncle like that? Got a parent like that? Or a son or a daughter? Unceasing anguish. and Great sorrow. In anticipation of the judgment to come. And what it would mean to go into a Christless eternity. And Paul is wondering, does God keep his word? And I want us as a church, that's the wrong way to put it, because it doesn't depend on me. I think God wants us as a church to feel this way about the lost people around us. Family members, on a personal level, feel that way about our lost family members. And not just on a personal level, but why has he sent us to this community? That we might feel this way and plead for the people made in his image in this community. We, we're here with a mission, with a purpose. We're not just looking for a place where we can set up and have church. We can do that anywhere. No, we, we've been sent here. If indeed we have been sent for this particular place. And so we want to feel this for the people in this place and not just the people in this community, but it is right here. It is right based on the apostles' example to feel this for the people of our own ethnic group. To weep if you, like me, are an African-American. And you see a people whose trust in God has been centuries long and has enabled them to survive slavery and to survive Jim Crow and to survive all manner of trouble. Did he look out and see this people who believed in God and wrote some of the greatest hymns of testimony to God and prayed some of the most fervent prayers to God and trusted that the ark of justice was long, but it bent toward justice? Did they see so many who can't tell you as a young man at the metro station The other night, even who Jesus is. It's right for this, for us. Whether we're white American or African American or whether we're Nigerian and you break that down to Igbo or Hossa or or, or what have you. It's right of us, whatever our, our ethnic backgrounds, to have some passion to see. The people made in God's image, made for His glory, come to know Him through saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to feel this ARC personally. We want to feel this for our community. We want to feel this for our ethnic group. We want to feel this for all the nations of the world. And that's why we want to hold fast to at least two of those M's in our. And our kind of DNA, our core commitment as a church. If you're new to us, you'll hear us talk about kind of five M's. So let me give you two of them, apart from which we have no reason to exist as a church the message of the gospel and missions to the nations. We exist because we have a message. And that message, which we'll explain a little bit later, is about this Christ. is about this salvation and how it is any sinner can be saved. If you hear nothing else this morning, you need to hear this message is why we exist. And we want to take that message to the ends of the earth, to every people and every nation. This is part of why we give. This is why we send people on short-term mission trips. This is why we pray. As some of us will feel a call to long-term missions. Because apart from hearing that message and believing that message, people will meet God, but not as father, as judge, who's angry over their sins. And our hearts, beloved, ought not rest until we have spent all of ourselves to make that message known in a mission to all the world beginning in southeast, reaching the four corners of the globe. And this is how Paul begins. This is how he feels. This is what's going on. And these are the two great motivations we want to have as a church, a heartfelt anguish for the loss, but also a heartfelt desire that Christ be exalted as Savior of the world. Did God's word of promise fail? This brings us to the second question. Paul answers that first question right there in verse 6. He says, it's not as though the word of God has failed. Full stop, period. That's clear. God's word has not failed, right? Well, if that's true, then why are some people not saved? Why is not all of Israel saved? He's got to answer that question. And that's the question he takes up in verses 6 to 13. Before we look at his answer in full, I want us to linger just for a moment on how he starts in verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Hold on to that, beloved. Hold on to that. Even when everything looks like it is going completely contrary to the promises of God's word. His word has not failed. His word is not fallen to the ground. Maybe write this reference down and memorize it if you haven't. Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. This is what Isaiah says there in this beautiful picture of rain and snow and compares it to the word of God. He says, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to heaven except that they water the earth, making it bring forth fruit and to sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, just as the rain and snow fall and water the earth. Verse 11, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, God says. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word never comes back void. It never comes back empty. It never falls to the ground lame. It is not broken. This gospel always accomplishes his purposes, the defects not in the word. And this is why Paul begins in Romans 1:16, perhaps saying, "For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. God's Word, God's gospel, never fails. In your anguish and sorrow, remember that. Hold fast to that. Because the first thing your pain will suggest to you is that God's word isn't working. That God has not kept his promise. That it's not going as it ought. And our pain and our anguish lies. God is trustworthy. And so... Is his word. So, why then is Israel not saved? Got to answer the question. And Paul gives us three answers really two negative, one positive. He gives us these two negative answers in order to illustrate that, that there are things that Israel has trusted in which do not have the power to say. And he gives us this positive answer to illustrate for us or to teach us the one thing that is saving, the one power that exists to save, that Israel has seemingly missed. So some are not saved, number one, because they rely on their ethnicity. They rely on their ethnicity, on their background, religious and otherwise. And so to make that point, verses 6 to 9, Paul reaches back to Israel's founding history. In verse 6, he points out that not all of Israel, or you may have a translation that says Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, not all of Jacob's descendants are really members of Israel. In verse 7, notice there, not all of Israel's descendants are counted among Abraham's children. So he goes even farther back to to the very first patriarch to whom the first promise was made. He says, listen, everybody who biologically descends from Abraham and biologically descends from his, his offspring, Israel, not all of them are the true Israel. Not all of them are, are saved. And in verse 9, see there? he reminds us that Abraham had two children. One son, Ishmael, by a, a, a maidservant, Hagar. And another son, Isaac, by his barren wife, Sarah. They're both physical descendants of Abraham, but only Isaac receives the promise. Here's the point. You you can't come into God's promises as a result of natural birth. You can't come into God's promises as a result of natural birth. Mom and dad, grandma and granddad, great-grandma and great-granddad, May all be Christians. That doesn't make me and you Christians. That doesn't make you and I recipients of the promises of God through Christ. Verse 8 puts it in a nutshell. Look there with me. Verse 8 says, this means that it is not the children of the flesh or the children of natural descent who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. And this just underlines what Paul said earlier. You can write this reference down if you like. Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, where the Apostle Paul says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And all of this is really reiterating what John says in John 1.13. Jeremy made reference to it last week. That we are children born, not of natural descent, nor of the will of humankind or man's decision, but born of God. God's word didn't fail with Israel, and it hasn't failed in our day, because God's word doesn't belong to anyone but the children of promise. Not to people who depend upon their background. This begs another question. We follow along in Romans 9, on what basis then does God make this promise to certain people and not to others? It's fine enough, Paul, that you say, hey, you've got to be children of promise, but it seemed to me he made the promise to Abraham and all of his descendants, and you're saying some received the promise and some haven't. Well, on what basis then does God determine who gets the promise and who doesn't? You see the question? It's answered there in verses 10 to 13. Paul uses another example from Israel's history. This time he reaches back to Rebecca's children. Someone could say in verses 6 to 9, look, Abraham had two sons by two different women. And Jacob had 12 sons by four different women. The different mothers explain the different outcomes. It's kind of that biblical version of mama's baby, papa's maybe.' you know. So in verse 10, somebody know what I'm talking about. So in verse 10, Paul goes back to the patriarchal line. He chooses a generation right between Abraham and Jacob, right? And he points out that Rebekah was one mother, and her children had one father, Isaac. And more than that, Isaac and Rebekah had twins born more or less at the same time. If you know your Bibles, you'll remember that, that they, they come out one twin holding the heel of the other, wrestling to see who would be the firstborn, even in the womb. But verse 11 gives us the answer to the question, on what basis? Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, verse 12, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I love. But Esau, I hate it. If anyone's going to say, some are not saved because of how they live, and some are saved because of how they live, this illustration is confronting that way of thinking head on. The promise came to Jacob before he or his brother or had done anything at all before they had taken any actions or made any decisions, good or bad. And the promise came to Jacob, even though he was the secondborn. In the culture of that time, all the rights of the family and the inheritance of the family went to the firstborn. But here now, the promise goes to the secondborn, reversing human custom and human tradition. It's not about natural rights before God or about our good deeds. Beloved. This is one of the most sobering truths I know. Good people go to hell all the time. Good people go to hell all the time. It's not about any good or bad that we have done in terms of gaining this salvation that Paul is concerned about. It's not about merit at all. Just like it's not about family background. So what is it? How is anyone ever saved? Is the Bible's answer. Salvation depends on God's prior election, on God's own choosing. That's all the word election means. It means choosing. That God decides who he will save. Again, verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election, that God's purpose in choosing might continue not because of works but because of his call. And this is where it starts to get unsettling for people. Notice how our confession of faith puts it. You have it in your bulletins there, near the end of your bulletin. I'm going to read from paragraph 2 and paragraph 5. This is in the chapter called God's decree, God's decision and action. Paragraph, three, paragraph 2 and paragraph 5. Notice paragraph 2. God's decree, his, his decision, his rule as sovereign is not based upon his foreknowledge that under certain conditions, certain happenings will take place. So it's not because he looked down the corridors of time and saw what would happen and then chose that way. So it's not based on that but is independent of all such foreknowledge. Now look at paragraph five. Before the world was made, God's eternal, so always existing, immutable, never changing purpose, which originated in the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, that means it was his own idea, nobody told him to do it this way, That his purpose moved him to choose or to elect in Christ, certain of mankind, to everlasting glory. Out of his mere free grace and love, he predestined these chosen ones to life, although there was nothing in them to cause him to choose him. See how this is a summary of Romans 9 and Ephesians 1 and, and Isaiah 46, which we read earlier? All the statement of faith is trying to do is not create new thoughts, but summarize what God has said. And we might put it this way For salvation to be completely a matter of God's grace, then it cannot depend on man's grit. And for salvation not to depend on human effort, for it not to depend on human effort, it must be a matter of divine election. It's His grace, not our grit. It's not our effort, but his election. So when we read in verse 13, where God says, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated, it's not a, a cruel, evil malice that's been expressed here. That's not the idea of love and hate here. It's a way of stating that God chose Jacob and passed over Esau. It's a way of stating that God's Free, unconstrained choice is the truest basis for receiving his free, uncontaminated love. We have free, unconstrained choice exercised by God that we might receive his free, uncontaminated love. Let me give you an illustration. We all understand this, I think. Maybe this illustration will help. Imagine a man saying to a woman, I'm going to make you love me chuckle. We, we know the problem with that, right? There's at least two. And saying, I'm going to make you love me, and don't be hunching the guy next to you, and say like that, right? A, say, I, I'm going to make you love me. Well, that's, that's force, isn't it? That's coercion. And we know that for love to be love, it has to be freely offered. It, it can't be coerced. It can't be forced. And we know something about, about him, too. And a man who says, I'm going to make you love me, well, that's not love that he's expressing. That's possessiveness, isn't it? That, that's the kind of control issues that, that becomes abusive, ultimately. Right? So for love to really be loved, it, it, it must be freely offered by the one who is given the love. And, and for love to be really love, it, it can't be selfish in that, in that carnal, possessive, ultimately abusive way. We, we all recognize that in our relationships, right? Now, whose love is greater, ours or God's? I mean, at best, our love is a dim reflection of his love. And if our love must be freely given, Without constraint and without abuse, then how much more so must God, who is love, freely choose to give his love, unconstrained by anything outside of himself? This is what we're learning about God in this text. But Here's why this is troubling. It means he's in control of his own love. We can't obligate him. We can't now say to God, I'm going to make you love me. No, he's as free, in fact, more free than any of us in the expression of his love. And for it to be love, it has to be free. This is what Paul is telling us here. We are saved for one reason. It's because God chose to love us. That's how anybody is ever. Say, God, before the world began, chose them in love. There's another passage that's related to this that might be helpful background. Remember, Paul is concerned about Israel and all the promises that have been given to Israel. And and you might, you can jot this down and look at it later. In the background, God speaks to Israel in, in a book called Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6, 7, and 8, right around in there. And God says to Israel, why did I love you? He says, it wasn't because you were the the greatest in number. He says, it wasn't because you were the, the mightiest of all the nations. He says, I loved you because I loved you. I loved you because I loved you. Now, this is where this gets troubling and comforting. Because it's troubling as we in time are watching our loved ones struggle to understand the faith or to come to faith in Christ. It's difficult to think that that God maybe hasn't loved them that way. That's a terrifying thought. It's a troubling thought. And here's why someone like Spurgeon says this this whole doctrine of election is a family secret. It's not the thing that we talk about when we're doing evangelism. We don't go out and say, hey, you know whether or not God chose you? Of course not. It's the wrong place for that doctrine. It's for the believer's comfort that we are being shown this. I'll never forget coming to this kicking and screaming. Kicking and screaming. This ain't the God I know. This is uh, uh I, I chose God. You know, I, I mean just kicking and screaming. And the more I read the Bible, the more God kept laughing and smacking me down. And the more I read other good Christian books, the more, more helped I was becoming. But you could see skid marks in my heart all the way, all the way to this doctrine. And I'll never forget I came to it intellectually before I came to it emotionally. I couldn't. I couldn't argue against what the text was saying anymore. So I just thought, "This, this is what the Bible says. I got to accept it." But it was walking to the metro station, Franconia Springfield Metro Station. We lived in Dumfries at the time. I make the commute to DC, and I parked over and somebody shouting out Dumfries. I parked over. I parked over in the mall and walked over to the to the um, to the metro station, hoping I wouldn't get a ticket. You know, being parked where I shouldn't have. And and I was just praying and meditating on this, and it. I'm a Christian only because God loved me. Wasn't a thing that I did. Wasn't an argument that I made. Wasn't any achievement of my own. I'm a Christian only because God loved me. And then it hit me. He loves me. I mean, I'm a Christian. That means he loved me. He loved me before the foundation of the world. He loved me before I did anything good or bad. He loved me before I was a speck in my mother's eye. He loved me knowing everything that I would do. And God still loves me. He loves me. And I sang walking to the bus stop that morning. And just this joy and this comfort that the God of the universe beloved, to know that you are in the faith because God already loved you, is one of the most comforting things you could ever know. John says it in 1 John, it's not that we first loved him, but that he first loved us. Our love for him is the echo of his eternal love for us. And it's when we lay hold to that that this begins to comfort in the way that it ought to comfort. And here's what we know about God's love. He's in control of it, yes, but he loves to express it. And this is why Paul doesn't stop praying for Israel and why we don't stop praying for our loved ones. We have reason to pray because he's loving. His love then also becomes the basis and the motivation for our prayer. It doesn't, it doesn't become a disincentive to pray. prayer. It goes, oh, God, you love me, and part of why you love me is that I might pray in love for them. Would you, would you love them and include them? And your love as well. It becomes a deeper foundation even for our prayers for the lost. So Paul doesn't come to this and then stop writing halfway through and walk away discouraged, if you kept reading through Romans 10 and Romans 11, you'll see him begin to express confidence that Israel would be saved. Why? This sovereign God is a loving God and able to extend his love to all whom he desires. And so we pray that he would. Let me, let me move to the next, thing, next question. Number three here. If God saves this way and he doesn't save everyone, Is God fair? Is God fair in not saving everyone? And and maybe you're sitting here listening to this sermon and reading through this text, and that was your next question. Now, if that was your next question, I want to clue you into something. God found you out. He knew that question would be asked. 2,000 years ago, he had the writer of the Bible handle that question. In other words, God's speaking to you now, if that's your question. It's a very good question. It's important enough for God to answer it in his word. Hear what he says. Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Right? In other words, if God chooses some and not others, even before they're born and without regard to anything they've done, how, how in the world can God be righteous? Is that fair? That's the objection. Notice now what Paul says in verses 14 and 15. Is God unjust? Not at all. In the original language, that's that's very strong. Absolutely not. Not at all. Why? For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, if you stop right there, if you're like me, you're like, well, Paul, that didn't help. I mean, you know, help a brother out. I, I, I thought you were going to make this better, you know. But you quote God saying, "I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion." Now, Paul is quoting Genesis thirty-three nineteen, where God speaks. And he restates the principle in verse 16 again. Notice there. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Then he illustrates it, verse 17, with God hardening Pharaoh's heart. It's getting worse, isn't it? But here's the point. It's what we're meant to see. God is sovereign over his own heart as much as he's sovereign over our hearts. He will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And he will harden whom he will harden. Now, by pointing us to God's sovereignty, the Bible is simply saying this. God, he is God. He, as we sang before, alone is God. There is no God but Him. There is no God beside Him. He is sovereign in everything, including those things we most want from Him, namely His mercy and His love. Why is this comforting? It's comforting because of Romans 8.28 in the previous chapter. For God works all things together for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Well, how can Romans 8.28 be true in a world that seems to be so full of chaos? Well, it's because he's sovereign. It's because he rules in all things and he's able and he has the right then to work things together in such a way that it's for our good if we love him and are called by him. You can't have Romans 8.28 without Romans 9. We can't have a God who works everything together without a God who can work everything together and has the right to do so. Right? Right? And so Romans 9 is the foundation for Romans 8. And if God works all things together for good for those who love and are called according to his purpose, then it must be that God has the power to right to rule over every heart. Because most of the things that threaten us seem to come to us through people whose hearts we question. You know the boss that gives you a hard time? His heart is in God's hands. The spouse that gives you difficulty? Their heart is in God's hand. The children who rebel, their little hearts are in God's hands. Enemy nations who threaten with ballistic bombs, he turns the hearts of kings. Their hearts are in his hands. And he works even the desires of the heart in such a way as to ultimately do good for his people. This is why God ruling hearts, even in salvation, is comforting because he's God and he does all things well. How is anyone say? Only if God loves them and chooses them. Only if God sets his affection on them. Which raises another question as we come to a close. Well, then can God blame us if he doesn't save us? That's the question that begins in verse 19, right? You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? If it works like that, then it ain't got nothing to do with what I did or who I was born to, and, and it's all down to God's choosing. How is it then that God finds fault with anybody? Paul says, good question. Notice how he answers in verse 20. He's quoting now from Isaiah 29, verse 16. It says, but who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Now, again, some of the answers of the Bible don't seem very satisfying. Because that's almost a, you know, don't question God. But it's not quite what Paul is saying. He's not saying don't ever question God. Some of us grew up in churches or grew up with parents who, when we asked them questions, they say, don't, don't question God. You never question God. Well, and, and so we have probably gone through life and even through adult life sort of not having answers to very good questions and, and feeling like, well, if I have a question that I place before God, I'm, I'm being unfaithful to God. Well, that's not what is intended here. Something different is intended. There is an answer here, and we sang of it earlier. Matt talked about it before he prayed for us. God is creator, and we are creatures. Paul isn't so much saying, don't ask questions of God. Paul is saying, remember who you are before God. Shall the thing that was formed say to the one who formed it, why have you made me thus? He's saying, listen, does not the potter have power over the clay? God is the potter. God is the one who has made us and molded us. God is the one who has given us life. He is the creator, and we are creatures. And so he has right over us as creatures. And so on that fundamental level of distinguishing between the creator and the creature, we can't challenge that. If we kick against that, we kick against ourselves. If we try to break ranks there, we break ourselves. And I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm not so sanctified as a Christian that I'd never forget this creator-creature distinction. Every once in a while, it's helpful to my own soul to be reminded that I'm not God and I'm not equal with God. That God alone is God and that I'm the creature and that he has rights over me as my creator. God is creator. We are creature. That means he owns us. And we owe him obedience. We don't want to forget that. The striking thing about this quotation from Exodus 33 and Isaiah 29 is as if, as Paul has written this chapter, he has people who have been putting God on trial. Did your word fail? Why are not all Israel saved? Are you fair to save that way? And God goes ahead, or Paul goes ahead and calls He calls God to the witness stand. The striking thing about these two quotations is they're not quotations of the narrator saying that. These are not quotations of some of the prophets saying this. These quotations are quotations in passages of the Bible where God himself is speaking. So he calls God to the witness stand, and this is the witness that God bears. He says, listen, I'm God, I'm I'm sovereign, I made you be quiet. Probably had parents like that. Boy, I brought you in this world. I'll take you out and make another one look just like you. Anybody got a mom or daddy like that? That's good theology. (laughs) You know, boy, you you keep bumping your gums, your lips going to beat you to the hospital. You know, so that's not such good theology. (laughs) But we've all had parents who have said, as my mama would say sometimes, boy, hush now. Now, whenever she said that, that was the end of the discussion, (laughs) the end of the argument. I walked on wherever I was going, and and that that was it, because she had reached that limit. God says there are limits with him. And every once in a while, we put him on the witness stand, and he leans over the ballast, and he says, hush now. I am God. You're a creature. I made you, and I'm ruling my universe in accord with my desires and my rights even over you. And it's the essence of faith to accept that, to welcome that, to even trust that, not grudgingly, but gladly, because of who God is and what God is like. To read once more from our Confession of Faith, the first paragraph, you see it there. When we talk about God's decrees or God being sovereign, Here's the most basic statement of it. From all eternity, God decreed all that should happen in time. And this he did freely and unalterably, consulting only his own wise and holy will. Yet in so doing, he does not become in any sense the author of sin, nor does he share responsibility for sin with sinners. We do that on our own. Neither by reason of his decree is the will of any creature whom he has made violated. So not only do we sin on our own, we do willingly sin. Nor is the free working of second causes put aside. That's a reference in Romans eight twenty-eight, How God can take other things and work them together and bring, the, bring forward his will. So those second causes aren't set aside, they are established. In all these matters, the divine wisdom appears as also does God's power and faithfulness in effecting that which he has purposed. Now, he has purposed the salvation of an untold number of people from every tribe and language and ethnic group. This becomes our confidence in evangelism and missions. In the same way that God once said to the Apostle Paul, who'd just been um, opposed by a city, listen, don't lose heart, don't leave, keep preaching the gospel, for I have a people in this city. He says, Anacostia River Church, don't fret about Southeast D.C. Don't fret about bad news reports. Don't fret about moving into the neighborhood. Don't fret about the people you meet when you walk on the block sharing the gospel. Don't fret about neighborhoods that seem to go south. And, and don't fret about those who walk across your yard and, and, and mess with your stuff in the backyard. Don't, don't fret. I have a people in this city. I got people I'm going to save. I got people that I've loved before the foundation of the world, and I brought you here who I love that they might hear this gospel and they too might be saved. Don't fret. I'm a sovereign God, and I use my sovereign love and mercy to save. Believe me. Trust me. Go on and preach the gospel. This is for our confidence. So how can anyone be saved? The rest of Romans 9 tells us it's by God's sovereign love and our responding to it in faith. Notice something. God says with a purpose. Verses 22 to 24. His purpose that is, is to bring himself glory. Some of the clay pots he made for glory, some for dishonorable use. We do this in our houses all the time. If special people are coming over, we break out the good plates. You know, if your mother-in-law is coming, there's paper plates. You know, all the time, we got some vessels for honorable use, some for dishonorable. We're vessels to God. Some of y'all got that a little late, but that's all right. We're vessels to God. And by the way, I'm not talking about my mother-in-law, all right? just just to be on public record, Uh, some for honor, some for dishonor, both for his glory. He shows his glory in the judgment of sinners. And that glory magnifies the greater glory of his mercy to sinners. So Paul says, what if God was patient for a long time with vessels, notice the word there, prepared for wrath. What if he was patient for a long time with those who were rebelling against him so that now you vessels whom he has saved, even us whom he has called, is so that in saving us he would magnify the greatness of his glory in the mercy he showed us. That's God's purpose. And he saves not only with a purpose, he saves without prejudice. Notice there in verses 25 and 26. Paul now goes back to Hosea and he quotes there. In Hosea, in the original context, God says to Israel in a judgment that there's going to be a place where he says to them, you are not my people. You are no longer my people. And Paul, reading this through the lens of Christ, says, in that place where God says, you are not my people, he said to Gentiles, you are my people. He's going to bring in all the nations, not just Israel. He's going to save people without prejudice, and God saves without being permissive, too. So verse 27 and 29, you notice that word remnant there? There's a remnant of Israel that's going to be saved. That word remnant just means a, a smaller part of the whole. There's a smaller part of Israel that's going to be saved. Why? Because that other part which rebelled against God, God will not wink at their rebellion. He, he will judge them for their sins. He is not a permissive God. It's a holy God. And a righteous God, he saves with the purpose of showing his glory. He saves without prejudice. He saves without permissiveness. And notice now, he's going to save again without our our perfections. Verses 30 to 33, it's not about our having obeyed the law and done good things. Israel is not saved precisely because of that reason. They tried to establish a righteousness of their own by keeping the law. And the ironic thing that he says in those three verses is notice what happens with the Gentiles. The Gentiles who did not keep the law but had faith in God, they have a righteousness not of their own, but a righteousness that comes from God through Jesus Christ. Christ, that last verse, verse 33, is the end of the law for righteousness to all who believe. We do not have to go about trying to be perfect and pleasing to God. We can't. But Christ is our perfection. He has already pleased God. He has already obeyed God. All of the obedience we will ever need to satisfy a holy God, Jesus provides for us. And all of the removal of guilt and sin that we will ever need to be in the presence of God, Jesus has taken away from us. By that one act, his perfect obedient life leading to his crucifixion on the cross and his resurrection three days later, Jesus has become for us all that we need in order to be saved by God. And the promise which does not fail, the word which has not failed, is if you will repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. Look with me in Romans chapter 10, around verse 14. Notice what God's word says there. Or let's begin in verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's God's word. That's God's promise. Call upon the name of the Lord. And you will be saved from God's judgment against sin. If you're here this morning and you've not yet done that, do that now. Call upon the name of the Lord. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you have decreed, that no one shall come to you apart from Jesus, your son. But all who come to you through Jesus, not one of them will be lost. Other religions make other claims. Men try to establish their own righteousness before you. Some trust in their background and their heritage. But only one thing saves. Only Christ saves who is the demonstration of your love. His cross, O Lord, you purposed before the worlds began. And you set your love on a people, Lord, before the worlds began. And it is our great joy to discover people coming into that love as we live and march toward eternity. And we pray, O Lord, that even this morning, you would free the hearts of some that are gripped by things that keep them from Jesus. It could be, O Lord, sins. It could be, oh Lord, wrong ideas. It could be good things like family or job they enjoy or any number of things. Lord, don't even let good things get in the way of your salvation. Oh Lord, let folks see Christ and love Him and come to Him and be saved. Oh Father, we pray that this decree that you have established, that some will come to you because you have loved them and called them, that it would not strike terror in the hearts of your people who you already love, but it might create a, a real fear for those who don't yet know you, who have been presuming upon your love. And in that fear, Lord, let them not be discouraged. Let them not turn away and forget your goodness. But rather, as we read in Romans 10, let them call upon your name and save them, O Lord, we pray. We pray this for our family members. We pray this for our community. We pray this, O Lord, for the various nations of the world. Send your gospel forward and save for your glory, we pray, in Jesus' name.